Hi there. I have an interesting conversation to share with you all today. I spoke to Nora Moran, who learned to train dogs as an inmate in prison. She was incarcerated for 10 years and was a puppy raiser behind bars. And now she works for Puppies Behind Bars as a director. I asked her about um, the program and her evolution as a dog trainer. But before I share my chat with Nora, I wanted to read aloud uh, a position statement that was just published by AVSAB, A-V-S-A-B, that stands for the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behaviorists. They put out this excellent statement about why we should not be using force, punishment, and aversive techniques to train dogs. Um, So I am reading it aloud. It takes me uh, about 13 minutes. I read the whole thing, including the frequently asked questions plus the books they recommend uh, if you're interested in learning more about positive reinforcement training. Um, So if you've already read it or you're not interested, you can skip ahead (laughs) about uh, 13 or 14 minutes. You can also find the position paper on our website at schoolforthedogs.com slash humane training. Evidence supports the use of reward-based methods for all canine training. AVSAB promotes interactions with animals based on compassion, respect, and scientific evidence. Based on these factors, reward-based learning offers the most advantages and least harm to the learner's welfare. Research supports the efficacy of reward-based training to address unwanted and challenging behaviors. There is no evidence that aversive training is necessary for dog training or behavior modification. Reward-based techniques should be used for teaching common training skills as well as to address unwanted behaviors. The application of aversive methods, which by definition rely on application of force, pain, or emotional or physical discomfort, should not be used in canine training or for the treatment of behavioral disorders. As the role of companion animals has evolved, their welfare and the relationships between humans and animals have become increasingly important. It is understood that animals are sentient and should be treated with respect and compassion. Learning manners and skills can help animals coexist harmoniously with people in the home and in society. The techniques used to teach these manners and skills can strongly affect an animal's future behavior and emotional well-being. Training methods are most effective when they focus on teaching the animal what to do rather than punishing them for unwanted behaviors. Common training issues such as jumping, barking, and house training can be managed by arranging the environment appropriately and reinforcing desirable responses. More serious behavior concerns, such as aggression, anxiety, and fear, require a treatment plan that includes environmental management, behavior modification, and in some cases, medication. Environmental conditions that drive the behavior should be addressed and the dog should be set up to make appropriate responses. Management can include avoiding situations that lead to the unwanted behavior and ensuring the safety of all involved. Many methods of changing behavior in dogs are effective. However, the evidence-based veterinarian or behavior consultant should be concerned not just with what is effective, but what does the least harm and produces the best long-term results. Current literature on dog training methods shows a clear advantage of reward-based methods over aversive-based methods with respect to immediate and long-term welfare, training effectiveness, and the dog-human relationship. Exhaustive analyses of dog training literature have been completed and are available for review. A brief summary of the current evidence regarding canine training and some common questions about training techniques are addressed in this document. Detrimental effects on animal welfare, acute effects. In observational studies, dogs trained with aversive methods or tools showed stress-related behaviors during training, including tense body, lower body posture, lip licking, tail lowering, lifting front leg, panting, yawning, and yelping. Dogs trained with reward-based methods showed increased attentiveness to their owners. Long-term effects. Survey studies have shown an association between the use of aversive training methods and long-term behavior problems, including aggression, 
I'm sorry, including aggressive behaviors towards people and other dogs and anxiety-related behaviors such as avoidance and excitability. Survey studies cannot differentiate between causation and correlation, so possible explanations for this association include, one, aversive training methods directly cause or contribute to the development of problem behaviors, or two, owners of dogs with problem behaviors are more likely to use aversive training tools. Regardless of the explanation, this association shows that aversive training methods are not effective in eliminating problem behaviors. If they did, we would see the opposite trend of decreased problem behaviors with increased use of aversive training. In contrast, dogs trained with reward-based methods have lower rates of behavior concerned, co concerns compared with dogs trained with aversive methods. Several studies show the effect of aversive training persists beyond the time of training. After dogs learned a cue taught using aversive training methods, they continued to show stress-related behaviors when the cue was presented, suggesting the cue itself had become aversive. In 2020, DeCastro et al. found that dogs trained with aversive methods were more pessimistic on average compared to dogs trained using reward-based methods. Training effectiveness. Reward-based training methods have been shown to be more effective than aversive methods. Multiple survey studies have shown higher obedience in dogs trained with reward-based methods. Hibby et al. 2004 found that obedience levels were highest for dogs trained exclusively with reward-based methods and lowest for dogs trained exclusively with aversive-based methods. Dogs trained with a combination of rewards and aversive-based methods, often referred to as balanced in the dog training industry, produced lower obedience levels than reward-based, but better than exclusively aversive-based training. Aversive training has been shown to impair dogs' ability to learn new tasks. Recall training is the most common reason dog owners use remote electronic shock collars. Even in the hands of experienced trainers, no difference in the effectiveness was found between remote electric shock collars versus reward-based methods for teaching recall stop chasing. Uh, in dogs with a history of off-leash behavior problems, China et al. 2020 found no difference in the uh, proposition of disobeyed cues between dogs trained with electronic shock collars by manufacturer-nominated trainers uh, compared with reward-based training. Uh, dogs trained with reward-based methods in this study had a shorter delay before responding than the group trained with electronic shock collars. Effects on dog-human relationship. Reward-based methods promote a strong, positive bond between dog and owner. Rooney and Cowan, 2011, found dogs who were trained with aversive methods were less likely to interact with a stranger during relaxed social play. Dogs trained using physical punishment were also less likely to interact with their owner during play. Vieira de Castro et al., 2019, found that dogs who attended reward-based training schools played more in the presence of their owner than in the presence of a stranger. They also followed and greeted the owner more than a stranger. Dogs trained with reward-based methods were shown to gaze towards their owners more frequently during training. Physiologic measures of stress. Cortisol is the most commonly evaluated biomarker of stress in dogs. Interpreting cortisol's interp <laughs> Interpreting cortisol studies can be difficult because cortisol levels increase with both positive and negative emotional arousal. Cortisol increases both with positive emotional stress, eustress, and negative emotional states, distress. Therefore, interpretation of cortisol level can be difficult and should be done along with behavioral responses. DeCastro et al. 2020 found that dogs trained using aversive methods had higher elevations in cortisol compared to dogs trained with reward-based methods. This higher cortisol level correlated with more stress-related behaviors, lip-licking, yawning, and more time spent tense and panting during training in the aversive training group compared to the reward-based training group. Addressing problem behaviors without the use of aversive methods. Behavior modification plans should include science-based classical or operant conditioning protocols. There is no role for aversive training and behavior modification plans. Creating positive associations to stimuli perceived by the dog as frightening is essential in easing fear and anxiety. 
Teaching new skills can build confidence and provide the animal with alternative patterns of behavior that are more compatible with life in our homes and neighborhoods. Systematic desensitization, as opposed to flooding or exposure plans, involves very gradual exposure to the stimulus in a way that keeps the dog feeling safe at all times. Positive reinforcement of appropriate behavior helps the animal student learn while keeping them engaged in the process. Management strategies, including antecedent arrangement, have a vital role in dog training and should be considered in all training and behavior modification plans. Medication may also be necessary for serious behavior problems such as fear, aggression, separation, anxiety, noise, phobia, or compulsive disorders. These individuals should always be evaluated by a veterinarian so that an accurate diagnosis and treatment plan can be made in medical conditions uh, that may contribute to the problem can be excluded. Conclusion. Based on current scientific evidence, AVSAB recommends that only reward-based training methods are used for all dog training, including the treatment of behavior problems. Aversive training methods have a damaging effect on both animal welfare and the human-animal bond. There is no evidence that aversive methods are more effective than reward-based methods in any context. AVSAB therefore advises that aversive methods should not be used in animal training or for the treatment of behavior disorders. Frequently asked questions. What are some examples of techniques that may be used by a reward-based trainer? Trainers may use verbal or visual cues to signal the required behavior, a clicker or verbal marker to mark the behavior, and toys, treats, or other appropriate reinforcers to reward the behavior. Capturing, shaping, and luring may be used to teach desired behaviors. Does reward-based training mean that dogs are allowed to do unwanted behavior? behaviors? Use of reward-based methods does not mean dogs are allowed to do anything they want. All animals learn best when given appropriate structure, routine, and guidelines. However, it, it, it is imperative that these boundaries be taught without the use of fear, intimidation, or pain. Are aversive training techniques appropriate for animals who exhibit aggression? Animals with challenging behavior disorders such as aggression should be treated with effective, compassionate, and humane methods of training rather than with a quote-unquote heavy hand. There are no exceptions to this standard. If a trainer is having difficulty modifying a particular behavior, they should consult with another reward-based training or refer to a veterinarian, board-certified veterinary behaviorist, or a certified applied animal behaviorist. What techniques should be avoided in training? An appropriate trainer should avoid any use of training tools that involve pain, choke chains, prong collars, or electric shock collars, intimidation, squirt bottles, shaker noise cans, compressed air cans, shouting, staring, or forceful manipulations such as alpha rolls or dominance downs, physical corrective correction techniques, leash jerking, physical force, or flooding, exposure. The learner must always feel safe and have the ability to opt out of training sessions. All efforts should be made to communicate effectively and respect respectfully with the learner. Why should aversive training techniques be avoided? The consequences and fallout from aversive training methods have been proven and are well documented. These include increased anxiety and fear-related aggression, avoidance, and learned helplessness. Animals may be less motivated to engage in training and less likely to interact with human members of the household. How should a veterinarian decide who to refer to for training? Veterinarians offering training referrals should recommend the most qualified and ethical trainers. The trainers should be certified, humane, and effective. Whenever possible, veterinarians should interview and observe a trainer's methods before recommending them to clients. If a trainer is observed using aversive training methods or if a trainer discusses outdated ideas such as dominance, leader of the pack, or alpha theories, then clients should be advised against hiring them. Trainers with backgrounds in higher-level education, such as the Karen Pryor Academy and Jean Donaldson's Academy for Dog Trainers, as well as involvement in organizations such as the Pet Professional Guild, International Association of Animal Behavior Consultants, Victoria Stillwell's Academy for Dog Trainers, and fear-free certifications should be recommended whenever possible. What is the role of the veterinarian in behavioral care? Veterinarians are an important part of the training or behavior team. Incorporating behavior history and assessments in every patient 
visit encourages early intervention for problem behaviors. The veterinarian also plays an important role in evaluating the health of the animal to determine if there are medical factors contributing to the behavior concern. After the health evaluation, the veterinarian can determine if they have the skills and desire to create a behavior treatment plan or if they prefer to partner with a behavior consultant or a trainer. Veterinarians creating behavior treatment plans or partnering with other professionals for the treatment of behavior concerns should not consider the use of pharmaceuticals as a quote-unquote last resort for behavior problems. Open communication with board-certified veterinary behaviorists and members of AVSAB is encouraged. Recommended reading list. Decoding your dog, decoding your cat, from fearful to fear-free, WAG, the science of making your dog happy, puppy start right, the power of positive dog training, don't shoot the dog, how to behave so your dog behaves, the other end of the leash, Control Unleashed, Reactive to Relaxed, Animal Training, Successful Animal Management Through Positive Reinforcement. My name is Annie Grossman and I'm a dog trainer. I'm the owner and co-founder of School for the Dogs, a dog training center located in Manhattan's East Village. School, school for the dogs, for the dogs. On this podcast, I talk about dog training, interview industry experts, discuss pet trends, answer questions, and try to communicate my love for all things related to behavioral science. Thanks a lot for listening. I think this podcast will help make you the best possible human best friend any dog could ask for. My name is Nora Moran. I am the director of our dog tags program within Puppies Behind Bars, a nonprofit organization that trains people who are incarcerated to train service dogs for Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans, for first responders, and explosive detection canines for law enforcement. Um, I started, Puppies Behind Bars started in 1997, raising guide dogs for guiding eyes for the blind. Um, And the program originally started in one women's correctional facility in New York State. We have since expanded. We now operate out of six correctional facilities, five in New York, one in New Jersey, um, and have um, been doing it for, for over 20 years now. So... And how many, how many, uh, how many people then are then raising these dogs? So out of the, it's kind of a one room schoolhouse in each of our facilities. So as um, puppy raisers come in new to the program, we have puppy raisers who have been in the program for several years. Um, it varies per facility. And right now, in part because of COVID and lack of um, transit between facilities, our numbers are down, but um, we could have anywhere from 10 to 30 inmates in, in the facility at any given time raising dogs, depending on on kind of what's going on in each facility. But right now we're a little bit down in numbers. And how, how old is, are they starting with just like a very young puppy then? We, our puppies go into prison at eight weeks of age. So we have a very small breeding program. Um, we do two or three litters a year um, that supplies some of our puppies for our organization. We also work with a number of, um, uh, with a few, a, a small handful of breeders who um, understand the kind of temperament and medical needs that we require for dogs in our program. What are, what are the breeds that you use? Exclusively Labrador Retrievers. So uh, prisoners are getting these puppies at eight weeks of age and how long do they get to keep them? Um, it depends on the career that the dog goes off to. Our explosive detection canines, we train them until they're roughly a year of age before they go to an agency to finish their formal training. Um, For our service dogs, we like to place them roughly between 18 months and 24 months, um, give or take a few months here and there. I want to talk more about the program, but Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear how you got how you got into this career, because I, I think you have a pretty interesting path yourself. 
Yeah, so I started with Puppies Behind Bars as an inmate within Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. It's New York State's maximum security prison for women. Um, I was incarcerated there for 10 years, eight of which I was a volunteer within the Puppies Behind Bars program. And you were, you were very young. You, you were a puppy behind bars, weren't you? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I became incarcerated when I was 17 and I left just before turning 28. So um, I was fairly young and kind of grew up within the program, grew up learning, you know, how to communicate with people through learning how to communicate with dogs, um, learning how to, you know, figure out who my dog needed me to be and learning I could use those same skills, you know, in, in the real world to work with people and, and work with the organization. So what do you mean learning? What do you mean who your dog needed to be, needed you to be? Tell me more about that. I'm curious. Sure. So one thing that working with dogs has taught me is that they kind of reflect what we project. Um, and, you know, it, it training a dog for any kind of career or even just training a dog to be a healthy, emotionally whole dog, you know, part of the confidence we, we help nurture them into developing part of them trusting us to, to learn from us is dependent on, you know, what we're, who we're projecting ourselves to them, if that makes sense. So if I'm a frustrated um, um, person, the dog is experiencing that from me and is not going to learn as well. Um, I won't be able to communicate with them what I want them to do because I will be projecting, you know, my stuff at them. But um, learning how to, you know, practice good coping and emotion regulation skills and, and deciding what I wanted my dog to perceive from me. I wanted them to know I'm a confident handler, know that, you know, I'm going to listen to if they're telling me they are uncomfortable or they don't understand. Um, I need to project a project being a confident handler, able to kind of support them as they figure out their environment. So, so what was your very first experience of, of, uh, puppies behind bars. I mean, were you just handed a puppy one day? Did you hear about the program and then inquire? Well, there were dogs in the facility with women who have had been in the, the, the organization started um, in Bedford Hills in 97. So I didn't join until 2000 um, when, when I had gotten there. And there had been women there who I came to look up to and they were positive role models within the facility and they had dogs with them and seeing dogs being able to pet dogs you know while incarcerated just you know blew my mind so I knew I needed to be a part of the program and I had to figure out how what I needed to do to get there and in 2000 I interviewed got accepted into the program and and you know learned from the other puppy racers for several months before I was entrusted with the responsibility of training my own puppy. Um, so what's the process of, of learning to train a dog when you are incarcerated? Well, I, I mean, back then we were raising guide dogs um, or doing the preliminary training for, for guiding eyes for the blind. So basic obedience. Today we're, we're training completely different types of dogs. So it's a completely different responsibility for the puppy raisers than it was X years ago when I was in the program. Um, um, but essentially we have a curriculum for dog care, um, for dog, the commands that our dogs learn for basic medical. We have a curriculum for, you know, housebreaking, teaching house manners, how to teach a dog commands, how to recognize their body language, how to, um, um, provide for their grooming. So puppy raisers who join the program, they have to go through a process of, of learning basic skills and being able to demonstrate them um, hands-on um, and also through tests and homework and whatnot um, before earning the responsibility of, of working with their own eight-week-old puppy. 
Uh, is the curriculum positive reinforcement based? Oh, sure, 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 sure. Yep, absolutely. Because with puppies that young, I'm imagining a lot of it is socialization. There must even be some like sure. play playtime be between the puppies oh, that yeah. are there. Yeah, one of our requirements is our dogs get at least a minimum of three hours of ex off-leash exercise a day. So um, um, they get massaged daily. They get groomed daily. They are assigned to a puppy raiser whose responsibility it is, is to care for them 24-7. Um, and the puppies stay in their cells with them so that our dogs are never left without, without the attention and care of one individual person. Um, so yeah, that our, our puppies have, have pretty grand lives in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, who was, with, who was your first puppy? Um, I had a puppy named Bill who, <laughs> yeah, we called him Mr. Bill, <laughs> a, a black Labrador retriever who was, who was quite the character. So what you were, you were what, 18 at the time or 19 and um, I, a puppy? Yeah, I was, I was just shy of 20 when I, when I was, Handed a puppy and and asked to to train for and sure. <laughs> what was that like? Getting sort of you know this little ball of joy and what I'm guessing was not a great place to be. Was it? Um, it, it was. It, it, I'm trying to remember what it's like to be a <laughs> year old. Oh, that's quite a few years away. Um, well, had um, you had you ever had interactions with a puppy before that when you were when you were younger? Growing up, growing up, we had cats, dogs, what have you, but it's a completely different experience in prison that you are not only entrusted with a life, which is huge, absolutely huge, that someone trusts you, you who have done something obviously wrong to be there. Someone says, you know, despite the bad choices you've made in the past, you have an opportunity here to prove you're different, to prove that you have you know, skills and, and good things to offer. So that on one hand is remarkable that someone is willing to place their trust in you. Um, also just being responsible for a new life, that, that's huge. At, at 20 years old, being responsible for, for a puppy and, and all that entails is, is, you know, I certainly didn't have kids at that point and you know, that, that was a new experience for me. Um, and also just, you know, it's a puppy. How can you not smile and, and feel automatically, you know, a, a love and, 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 you know, fun and a, a bit of joy ju just because it's a puppy. And it, it must've really been a full-time job. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so what happened to Bill? Bill actually, he, he graduated his M4 training test, but then while trying to be placed or, or trained the, the formal training as a guide dog, he wasn't comfortable wearing the harness. So I think he went to go be a therapy dog in a group home. At that I imagine yeah. it must have been, you were with him for a year, huh? Um, two years. Two years. So I imagine it must have been pretty hard to say goodbye to him. Oh, yeah. So um, to love and let go is, is a difficult lesson, um, but it's one well-learned anywhere you learn it. So is that is that something that um, you have to help coach prisoners through? For sure. It, it's kind of a bittersweet process, especially if the dog has a career change or or doesn't quite, you know, if it doesn't make it as a service dog or, or the career you intended for it, you know, the, the feelings of disappointment, but also just understanding that our goal is to raise each dog to their fullest potential. Um, and sometimes that fullest potential isn't what we had planned for them, but, you know, our dogs get to choose who they are too. So, hmm. so are there full-time people at each of these prisons who are training the handlers how to train the dogs? Yeah, so we have puppies behind bar staff. We go in, myself included, to teach the inmates to train the dogs once a week. Um, and we, we spend a full day there, morning and afternoon modules, um, working with them and evaluating them and their dog's progress. Do you ever come across uh, puppy raisers who have very different ideas about how dogs should be trained? Um, 
Sure. I mean, one of the, they have different ideas of how dogs should be trained. And part of it is a collaborative effort. So we do encourage that they look at, uh, we encourage them to read, to get resources from home. But, you know, if they have new ideas, they're welcome to bring them to their instructor and us. And if we think that those are good ideas, we'll, we'll talk about it as an organization and decide whether or not we feel it's appropriate to employ them. Um, if they are not ideas we would condone and, you know, if they were really bad ideas and go against <laughs> all of our training methods, then that puppy raiser would not be in the program for very long. Well, I imagine, you know, if with two years of doing this, you must be producing some really great dog trainers. Are the recipients who now get our dogs, since we started training service dogs for veterans and now more recently for first responders, um, we do our, what we call team trainings, a 14 day training where the first, our clients are matched and trained to use their service dogs. Um, we have the puppy raisers serve as the instructors for half of the training. So the, the puppy raisers are the ones to teach the, the commands that the dogs know to teach the, um, um, give lectures on grooming, give lectures on building a relationship with your service dog. Um, medical, et cetera, and help troubleshoot whatever kind of handling issues that there may be there. So our inmates not only learn how to teach puppies, but they're also learning how to teach people as well, which, you know, is extraordinary. Do you have people who are getting out of prison and going into careers training dogs? Yeah, uh, to some degree, for sure. We, we've had puppy raisers come out and work for other dog training schools. We've had them go to work um, as veterinary assistants or, or, you know, in grooming um, facilities. Um, but more so, I, I feel like it's the, the life skills that our puppy raisers kind of go home with and learn how to use what they've learned in terms of teamwork, communication, um, and, and again, figuring, deciding on what you want to project to your dog that translates to people as well. So I feel like it's those life skills that, you know, our puppy raisers leave with say they may not directly go into the animal field, but they, they have gotten marketable skills. Um, something that I've talked, I talk a lot about on the podcast is how dog training, getting into dog training really opened up my eyes to the fact that there is a science of behavior that, um, you know, helped me understand uh, conditioning and, you know, really what punishment is, what reinforcement is, uh, and how we learn and how we learn to do things or not do things. Um, do you think that, um, inmates are taking away like a better understanding of, of behavior? Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that we, we've just been going over, um, um, the humane hierarchy and, and, Lima standards and, and discussing how um, both operant conditioning and classical conditioning and um, fit into that. Do you mind explaining for people listening who might not know what the humane hierarchy and Lima are? Sure. So Lima is least intrusive, um, minimally aversive. It's a, it, it's a standard practice that seeks to approach behavior protocols, knowing that the learner in this, in our case, the dog, but it can also be a human, um, has to be fully invested in the process as well. And that as uh, we try to change their behavior, we are being the least intrusive that we possibly can. We are giving the learner or, or the subject the most choice in the matter. Um, and minimally aversive, we are using the kindest methods possible. We are, we are using reinforcement as much as possible rather than any kind of punishment, if that makes sense. So it's it, what the human hierarchy asks us to do is to follow this sequence of, you know, the, this process of assessing 
our approach is the behavior rooted in something that could be nutritional, medical, or environmental is there. And once that's discussed, then moving on to, okay, so how do we address the behavior by, can we fix the problem by just modifying the environment? Do we need to go a step further and teach the dog something that we can use positive reinforcement to address? Do we have to, does that resolve the problem? Can we stay there? Do we have to go further to address the problem by reinforcing behaviors that, reinforcing incompatible behaviors to whatever behavioral problem we're trying? I feel like I'm going off on a tangent. <laughs> they want to edit this out, but- No, anyway. it's, a, it's a good tangent. <laughs> Anyway, it, what it asks us to do is take a systematic approach to, to addressing any behavioral problems and to, to address them from the kindest place possible where, where our dogs uh, get to be themselves and we're not changing who they are and, and getting them to do things they don't necessarily want to do. We're, we're just trying to make behavioral changes um, in an appropriate way. So anyway, I, I, I explain it much better in puppy class. But. <laughs> I think you did a pretty good job. I mean, talking about it, what, what's striking to me is though, like Lima is not used with people, you know, I think, <laughs> and nowhere must that be more apparent than when you are yourself behind bars. Um, seems like there are um, so many other ways that we could uh, modify behaviors than like putting people in, in boxes. There, there's a great book, um, by Karen London that we just had our puppy raisers read. It's called treat everyone like a dog. Oh, I have that book. I haven't read it yet, but I have it. It's fantastic. And it kind of talks about that, about how, you know, it, it, it doesn't take much for us to, you know, think about, how we need to treat dogs in a better way through dog training. I mean, I feel like as a society, we can kind of get that, but using those same concepts to, to um, relate to how we work with and treat people, I think it, it, she does a really great job of explaining. Um, um, so it's a really good book. I'd recommend it. Did you, did you make that connection when you started to learn about positive reinforcement dog training? No, it, it took a while for sure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it definitely took a while. I mean, it, again, I, it, dogs taught me, I, I mean, my first couple dogs taught me, like they would tell me kind of just through their body language who I'm being that day. And then I get to decide, do I want to continue being that person? Is this what my dog is experiencing from me? Well, maybe not. Maybe I get a, to make a new choice to change that. So I kind of got that early on, but um you know, using, um, you know, the same kind of approach to, to dog training and, and using the, the least, um, aversive means possible. I, I don't know that we always relate that way to humans. I mean, um, um, she talks about even as a teacher, this Karen London, who, who wrote this book, she talks about in one port, as a teacher, you know, even the way she grades tests, she began thinking about it in a new way. Um, instead of marking things wrong, right? Like teachers do with a red pen, you check which questions or answers are incorrect. Rather than focusing on that, we, we can go a different route and really emphasize the the answers that were answered correctly or the questions that were answered correctly and and in, it, instead of acknowledging and harping on what was wrong we want to reinforce what was right right so I, I think those kinds of of lessons translate to people just as well as dogs uh i've I've uh, seen, I think I saw a program about prisons in, in Germany where they put so much focus on education in the prisons. And that makes so much sense to me. I mean, it, it's really what you're doing, but I don't think that that's largely the, the focus of like our, our larger, I don't think that's the focus necessarily of the larger penal system. I mean, sure. I, ideally, uh, Again, it's not an area that I know that much about, but it seems to me like prisons should should be educational facilities, like yeah, full, full stop. 
they they do have college programs in a number of the facilities in New York State, and I'm not sure about other other states across the country, but largely, you know, uh, prisons are not well known for their educational systems for sure. But you did go to college while you were there. Yep, okay. I, did. I did have the opportunity to go to college while I was in in Bedford Hills Marymount Manhattan College. Mm -hmm. um, um, sponsored the program and conferred the degrees, although, you know, for much of the time it was supported by a consortium of colleges throughout New York State. Mm -hmm. um, um, right now, other prisons we operate out of, um, I think Mercy College has a program. Um, there's a number of other um, um, facilities so that have very other college programs. Was there any interplay then in, you know, what you were learning in college and what you were learning with um, the dogs you were working with? I mean, do, did one help inform the other? Um, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that my college education, it, it, um, I, I don't know that there was direct overlap in terms of, you know, you know, the science of learning theory. I, I, I don't know that there was any direct overlap, but I, I feel like the, the practice of, of going to class and having homework and engaging with other people towards a common goal. Um, I think those uh, classroom um, etiquette, I think those kinds of, of things, there, there was a definite a lot of overlap. And, um, so maybe uh, just being like a, a responsible person. Yeah. yeah. Learning how to be a responsible adult for sure. Yep. Uh, do you have any dogs today? Mm -hmm. Tell me about your dogs. So both of my dogs are dogs that didn't make it fully. Well, one of them was released from the program for lack of confidence. He, he um, is eight years old. His name is Dakota. He's a big yellow lab. Um, a big marshmallow. Um, <laughs> and Cheerio, my other dog, more recently, he became, he started off as um, an explosive detection canine for a local police department, but um, um, it was kind of at the beginning of COVID and, and the officer who was going to train with him got injured. So it just, it didn't work out that the time he got to finish the training. So he came back to us and while we were waiting for plan B to get him working, which never happened, he, he, he ended up staying with us and is now my running partner. So he's a near four year old <laughs> spoiled running partner, Labrador. So, so yeah. what is the first step that the inmates are doing to work at when they actually get to the point of teaching skills mm -hmm. to teach uh, explosive detection dogs? Like, where does that training start? So they're taught uh, basic search patterns and uh, a game called special play find it. So, you know, we, they start very young age, getting the dogs interested and invested in their special toy, a towel or a special plush toy and gradually build up their stamina to play with that toy and their interest engaging with that special toy. And then they, begin very, very simple to more complex hides with that toy. So the dog is encouraged to um, start from a very young age, looking, using their nose to, to locate that special toy. And as time goes on, the hides get more complex. The search pattern that they're asked to, um, the pattern in space that they're asked to search within grows larger and more complicated with, with you know, stuff to have to navigate around or under or fans blowing the scent around. So um, the first step is to get the dogs kind of imprinted on a special toy and to gradually build up their stamina and their work ethic from there. And then later on the toy is paired with what the scent of whatever it is they're looking for. And so it depends on the agency that, it, so we just get them really, really invested in the whole search pattern and, 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 and special play. So dependent on what agency um, the dog goes off to, they may use food reward or they may use play reward um, to imprint them on the smell of explosives. Hmm. 
So what's this first step of getting a dog interested in that special toy? Play. <laughs> Playing with that toy yeah. and I guess pairing Play. it, maybe yeah. also presenting it at mealtime. Is that part of it too? Uh, generally, uh, generally, we tried just to get up their play drive rather than pairing it with food. So um, luckily Labradors, um, and, and again, we, we try to fit the career to the dog's kind of personality. So the higher energy Labradors who want to be go, 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 go all the time. Those are the ones we try to steer towards our, our explosive detection canine work. The ones who are a little bit lazier, who would rather sit on the couch and, and eat a bowl of, um, kibble. Those ones will, are easier to just train with food and, and direct in that way. So we try to get our higher energy play drive dogs towards that career. And we, we as much as possible, try not to use food um, as opposed to play to, to reward their, their special play, find it. And are they also teaching basic skills like loose leash walking, sit down, stay? Yeah, so obedience for sure. Yep, yep. So where do you see yourself going in your career? Do you see yourself going um, like into more dog training or into more helping other people train dogs? So, I mean, puppies behind bars is kind of a vocation. It's not really a career for me. Um, it's it's really a lifestyle choice because it's not just your typical nine to five job. Um, um, I, I, I kind of see myself growing with the organization. We have recently, in addition to placing service dogs with veterans and first responders, we, we're starting this new initiative or newer initiative of placing dogs within police departments for officer wellness and community relations. So it's, it's we're learning as we go how to, you know, um, what kind of dog that needs to be versus our service dogs who know, um, you know, 60 plus commands, department dogs are different kind of dog and they need to be more self social rather than looking to their handler for so many cues. So I, I see my, myself kind of growing with the organization and, and learning, you know, how to take the model of the really well-trained dogs that we currently have and shifting it towards another career we're kind of innovating right now. One question I like to ask people is if somebody's listening and is interested in themselves becoming perhaps a professional dog trainer, uh -huh. um, what would you suggest they do first? What would be the first step? And to become a professional dog trainer, I would encourage them to find a professional dog trainer um, that has been certified through um, Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers or a reputable agency like Karen Fryer. Um, I, I would find a really good legitimate dog trainer and ask to learn from them. Um, also get all the books that you can, all the Karen Pryor videos you can, all the Ian Dunbar um, um, references and books that you can and, and be prepared to never stop learning because dog training certainly is an ever-growing field. Um, if somebody is behind bars and, but it doesn't have a program like yours, mm -hmm. um, is there a way that they can lobby to try and get one or, uh, or books that they could read? I mean, what, what would you suggest for that person? Um, well, if they're in New York State, they can always ask their counselor to be moved to a facility that has the program. Mm -hmm. um, if not in New York State, I mean, there are other states with prison programs, so I, I, I guess they'd have to look there, but maybe not. But are there any sort of like really great success stories of, of prisoners who've raised dogs, whether that's the dog has gone on to do amazing things or they've gone on to do amazing things themselves when they've maybe yeah. been able to get out. I mean, certainly you're, you sound like a grand success story, but are there yeah, <laughs> any others you can share? We, we have other puppy raisers in our office who, who are doing extraordinary work. We have puppy raisers. I, I mean, 
I wouldn't want to tell their stories without permission. So um, um, yes, we do have other puppy raisers who've gone home to do extraordinary things. We have puppy raised, former puppy raisers who work in our office, who are, who are great leaders and role models for, for those who come after. Um, And our dogs always go off to do amazing things. I mean, we just graduated two dogs, um, who went to NYPD, the employee assistance unit, and are going to work with, with the NYPD responding to crisis situations within the department to, you know, give people relief prior to, uh, give people relief and, and dog drool and dog hair after, you know, dealing with various traumas or or incidents that happen while on the job they go to comfort officers families who who may be dealing with the fact that their spouse or or parents have been injured or even worse um in the line of duty um our dogs are doing amazing things they have been doing years i mean the magic of dogs is that you know they just by being them they make whoever's around them better. Um, and I feel like we're lucky enough to be a part of that. It gets better every year we do it, so. Are there any um, opportunities for volunteering within the program for anyone listening yeah. who's a dog trainer or interested in, in learning sure, more? So we have volunteer capabilities. We have volunteers who live locally to the prisons we operate out of and in New York City. So, um, so volunteers get to bring dogs home um, to expose them to things that they wouldn't be exposed to in a prison environment. So, um, um, so yeah, definite um, volunteer opportunities and an application to be able to do so can be found on our website, puppiesbehindbars.com. Wow. Well, I would like to do that one day for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think it's really interesting um, what you're doing. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Could you send me um, a photo of yourself, maybe with a dog that we can just use in the promo? And then probably this will get up in the next week or two, I'm guessing. Sounds good. I'll ask my boyfriend to take a picture. I stay away from the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Take a nice picture. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, great. Well, we'll be in touch again. Thank you very much. I I highly appreciate it. And I hope we get to meet in person sometime soon. Cool. Sounds good. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storefortheDogs.com, and you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com. You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app. Just visit schoolforthedogs.com community. Hi, I wanted to let you know that I have a brand new, totally free masterclass available, and I'd love if you wanted to check it out. It's about an hour long, and it goes over three simple things that every dog owner needs to know in order to teach a dog quickly and easily without pain, force, a major time investment, or fancy equipment. When you register, you'll also get a free 20-page ebook all about what I call the dog training triad. You can find it at anniegrossman.com slash masterclass.